Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who bought his mother shotgun shells and cigarettes for her birthday. He is the cap. Well, I was hoping she'd kill my siblings. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Tropical Hazy by our good friends over at the Zaftig Brewing Company. This is very fittingly named as Tropical Hazy is a New England-style IPA that is tropical because of the exquisite fruit flavors, garage grade four and three-quarter bottle caps out of five. So close to five out of five. All right. Here's a cheers to this week's contributors. First up, cheers to Elizabeth in Appomattox, Virginia. And a big shout out to Donnie in Lawndale, North Carolina. Next up, we have Dave in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And a big we like your jib to Olivia in Wichita, Kansas. Next captain, we have Tamara in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And last but certainly not least, we have Ashley in Macon, Georgia. Check out our blog and check out our show swag for purchase on the store page, both available at truecrimegarage.com. Yeah, and check out our old episodes for free on the Stitcher app. And you can also check out our weekly show on Stitcher Premium called Off the Record. And you can find all of that at truecrimegarage.com. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
1995, criminologist and political scientist John DeLulio was invited to the White House to attend a working dinner on juvenile crime. That same year, DeLulio wrote an article on the subject matter titled The Coming of the Super Predators. He says the article is a much-needed reality check on the incredibly frightening picture that emerges from recent academic research on youth crime and violence. He says all of the research indicates that Americans are sitting atop a demographic crime bomb, and all of those who are closest to the problem hear the bomb ticking. He says big city prosecutors inundated him with war stories about the ever-growing numbers of hardened, remorseless juveniles who were showing up in the system. Quote, They kill or maim on impulse without any intelligible motive. Likewise, a veteran police officer told DeLulio, I never used to be scared. Now, I say a quick Hail Mary every time I get a call at night involving juveniles. I pray I go home in one piece to my own kids. On a visit to a New Jersey maximum security prison, he spoke to a group of inmates. One prisoner told him, I was a badass street gladiator, but these kids are stone-cold predators. He goes on to cite a soaring rise in youth crimes of violence, stating between 1985 and 1992, the rate at which males ages 14 to 17 commit murder dramatically increased. And while most violent youth crime is committed by juveniles against juveniles, of late, young offenders have been committing more homicides, robberies, and other crimes against adults. There is even some evidence that juveniles are doing homicidal violence in wolf packs, citing a 1993 study that said juveniles committed about a third of all homicides against strangers, often murdering their victim in groups of two or more. Moreover, the crimes are becoming more violent and more serious. For example, aggravated assaults rather than simple assaults, and attacks involving guns rather than weaponless violence. According to the article, the youth crime wave has reached horrific proportions. 1994, in Los Angeles, there were believed to be some 400 youth street gangs, with known members alone committing 370 murders and over 3,300 felony assaults. The criminologist goes on to say, What is really frightening is what's just around the corner, namely a sharp increase in the number of super-crime-prone young males. At the time, nationally, there were about 40 million children under the age of 10, the largest number in decades. In a decade, the then 4- to 7-year-olds will become 14- to 17-year-olds. To which he says it's simple. More boys begets more bad boys. This spike in the young male population means big trouble ahead. He pointed to, quote, scientific kitty crime literature, a study of 10,000 boys who lived in Philadelphia between their 10th and 18th birthdays. Over one-third had at least one recorded arrest. 
Most of the arrest occurred when the boys were ages 15 to 17. Half of the boys who were arrested were arrested more than once. But the most famous finding of the study was that 6% of the boys committed five or more crimes before they were 18, accounting for over half of all serious crimes and about two-thirds of all the violent crimes. This 6% do 50% statistic was replicated in a series of studies in several cities. It is on that basis that James Q. Wilson and other leading crime doctors predicted that the additional 500,000 boys who will be 14 to 17 years old in the year 2000 will mean at least 30,000 more murderers, rapists, and muggers on the streets. According to DeLulio, what was on the horizon was tens of thousands of severely morally impoverished juvenile super predators who were perfectly capable of committing the most heinous acts of physical violence for the most trivial reasons. They fear neither the stigma of arrest nor the pain of imprisonment. They live by the meanest code of the meanest streets, a code that reinforces rather than restrains their violent hair-trigger mentality. In prison or out, the things that super predators get with criminal behavior, sex, drugs, money, are immediate rewards. Nothing else matters to them. So for as long as their youthful energies hold out, they will do what comes naturally. Murder, rape, rob, assault, burglarize, deal deadly drugs, and get high. Mansfield B. Frazier's book warned of a sharp, cataclysmic increase in youth crime and violence, and what he called the coming menace. It is speeches, articles, and reports like DeLulio's that cites flawed statistics and study results that led to the growing panic in the U.S. of exaggerated inflation of youth gang violence and a new political phrase, the juvenile super predator. Somerville, Massachusetts, a beautiful place located directly northwest of Boston. The population at the time of our story is about 77,000 people. Now, our day in question will be or should be a beautiful Sunday, a summer's day in July. This is July 23rd, 1995. The kids are out of school, but 15-year-old Eddie O'Brien is getting up early. Eddie works a part-time job. He's had this job for over a year. Eddie is pretty much your ordinary, average, 15-year-old kid in almost every way, save but one. Eddie is big, and he's not just big for his age. He is big for any age. Eddie is six foot four inches tall and weighs about 250 pounds. That's a lot of LBs for a 15-year-old there, Captain. Now, the best way to describe Eddie other than big, I would say, is baby-faced. In the close-up photos from 1995, the headshots where 
you can't see his large frame. His face looks kind and boyish, looking younger than 15 in my opinion. But as said, Eddie is pretty much a normal kid. He has lots of friends. He's on the football team at school. He's a big sports fan, and I mean, come on, Boston is one of the great sports towns in all of America. So what does he play, running back? I think he might have been a lineman. So, of course, his favorite team, you know, being in the Boston area, Mm -hmm. is going to be the Pats, and his favorite athlete is one of the all-time greats, Mr. Larry Joe Bird. On this Sunday, Eddie has to be at work at 7 a.m. This is to put together the Sunday papers. He works at a carryout. So the big sellers are things like newspapers, magazines, soda, that kind of stuff. It's important to note a couple of things. The store where Eddie works is not very far from his home. He could easily walk there and did often. Eddie has several friends, close friends in the neighborhood, and they hang out all of the time and they are in and out of each other's houses all of the time. Kind of like our old white road Keller farms connection for us back in the day. Mm -hmm. Now Eddie goes to the store where he works, but he even goes there when he's not working. So this is not just a workplace for him. This is also somewhere that he frequents in his free time. As we said, he's a big sports fan, so he likes to go there and read the magazines and the newspapers. His friends from the neighborhood, they like to go to this store there often as well. Eddie spent the entire morning working. He got a ride home from his older sister. He brought home from the store two newspapers, the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald, and he also brought home some candy for his little sister. The newspapers were for his parents. And since we mentioned it, Captain, the Boston Globe is by far and away one of the better, one of the best resources actually for this case. And if anyone has not seen the movie Spotlight, which is about the Boston Globe, it's a must see. 15 year old Eddie O'Brien, he lives with his parents, Patricia and Edward Sr. Okay, so even though Eddie Jr. is six foot four, 250 pounds, his dad is is known in his family and to the neighborhood as Big Ed, okay? So Eddie is the 15-year-old big kid, and Big Ed is Eddie's father. There are five kids in Eddie's family, and he's the only son. It's also important to note that across the street from Eddie's house is his best friend's house. This is Ryan Downing. The Downing household consists of Ryan's mother, Janet, who is 42 years old and single, and her four children. Around 5 p.m., Eddie leaves his house with his sister and Ryan Downing's twin brother, Paul. They're going to go to the Catholic Church to attend the 5.30 Mass. Eddie's sister, Jeannie, will be driving the group of teens. As they get closer to the church... Jeannie drops Eddie off at Union Square. This is near his place of work. He sees someone he wants to talk to at his work, and he goes in there and he hangs out for a while. He leaves there on foot, heading in the direction of his house. Eddie stops off at a park and sees his best friend Ryan Downing at this park. They chat for a bit, 
and decide to walk home with two other friends together. Now, so all of them are going back to their neighborhood. The group decides to go to Ryan's house. Okay, Captain, this is important as we are about to have several moving pieces here, and I want to make sure this portion of the story comes out clear and that it is easy to follow because the events and the movements in regards to a a group or groups of teenagers will be very important to the rest of our story. So to be clear, we are now just after 6.30-ish, and we have four teenage boys, all very good friends. This is Eddie O'Brien, Joey Dion, Chris Ford, and Ryan Downing. They are all going to Ryan's house. They have all been there, I don't know, a hundred times before. Mm -hmm. They hung out there until almost 8 p.m. This is when the group is leaving to go swimming at a friend's house in the neighborhood. Eddie is the only one in the group that does not want to go swimming. Yeah, he's a bigger boy. So sometimes bigger boys don't want to go swimming. Well, you're right. You think back to when, when you're a kid, everyone knows someone for any number of reasons that was uncomfortable swimming in a group or with girls or with guys. Maybe. Yeah, or you had a friend that always had to swim with his shirt on. Yeah. I had to swim with a shirt on, but I preferred to swim without pants on. <laughs> well, and it was actually known to his closer friends that Eddie was uncomfortable about his weight. Right. So not only did he choose to not go swimming on this occasion, I'm guessing that was probably a pretty regular thing for him. Well, and just his overall size as well. I mean, 6'4", you're a giant compared to your your friends. You're you're bigger than most of your friends' parents. So he's going to opt out on the swimming for that evening. Now, again, Eddie's house is right across the street, so he just walks home. The Edward O'Brien house did not have air conditioning. So on a summer's day or night, and this was pretty typical of the neighborhood in general, his family, they might hang out on their front porch for hours and hours. So his father and Eddie and his little sister were all chilling on the porch. Mm-hmm. Some neighbors dropped by periodically to hang out and chat. Now, just before 8.30, Eddie's sister Jeannie and Paul Downing came home. They said they were going to go to the beach and swim. Paul went to his house across the street to change and then was seen leaving the house around 8.30 p.m. Note that at this time, just around 8.30 p.m., Paul is believed or was the only one seen going into the Downing house at this time. Right. At 9.15 p.m., Eddie decides to go out for a little bit before the night is over. Here is his plan. He's going to walk to the Burger King, grab a snack, and then walk to his friend. His friend's name is Garvey. He's going to walk to Garvey's house. This is at 9.15. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're all on board so far. We're going to move ahead in this timeline just a few minutes. This is between the minutes of 9.45 to 10 p.m. when the following takes place. Ryan Downing returns home. He finds his mother, Janet Downing, in a pool of blood on the dining room floor. Ryan runs from the house to get help. He runs across the street and gets Big Ed. Big Ed goes running with Ryan back to his house. Mm -hmm. 
Just before they go inside, Big Ed yells to the neighbors. This is Barry and Virginia Reckley. He yells for some kind of assistance from Barry. So now entering the home all behind Big Ed, we have the Reckleys and Ryan. During this time, they call 911 to report what they saw. From their own house. Correct. On July 23rd, 1995, Janet Downing, age 42 and mother of four, is found stabbed to death in her Somerville home. She was murdered sometime between 8 and 10 p.m. that Sunday night. This July 23rd, this 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. marker comes from Margot Nash's fantastic book, The Politics of Murder. The Boston Globe says she was killed between 8.30 and 9.15 p.m. I'm guessing other outlets probably reported similar times, likely more to the 8.30 to 9.15 p.m. time frame. Mm -hmm. I say that because we have Paul Downing who entered the home sometime around 8.15 and left just before 8.30. Shortly after 10 p.m., Eddie calls police from the Midnight Convenience Store where he works. And he says he was attacked by two men with a knife. He tells them he was mugged and had cuts to his right hand. Mm -hmm. Police speak with Eddie briefly at the store. They go there and speak with him. They take down the report and the paramedics are there too. They examine his cuts. I wonder if these actually look like defensive wounds because we know that somebody trying to use a knife, the knife could become slippery and cause wounds to their hands. But it also didn't seem like... He was covered in blood. Right. So what we have go down here at the midnight convenience store, Captain, the police speak with him. They take down his report. The paramedics examine his cuts. At at this time, the paramedics don't believe that he needs much medical attention. And like you said, he's clearly not covered in blood or the police are going to have a different reaction to the, the sight of this young man. But we also have to go through what Eddie told the police, but this is not at the midnight convenience store. This is later that same night when Eddie was treated at the hospital for these same injuries, the cuts to his right hand, and also some minor abrasions to Eddie's shins. One of the officers that participated in the safety sweep at the Downing house, this is the murder scene, the crime scene at the Downing house was later dispatched to go to the Somerville hospital. He was dispatched or so we're told this to interview a boy about an incident that took place earlier that day. The boy, Eddie, who said he was mugged and injured during that crime. So two officers arrived at the hospital around midnight. They spoke to Eddie for a while. His father and his uncle were present. Eddie was photographed during this meeting. He was wearing a white above the rim t-shirt, which was turned inside out. Eddie was also wearing green shorts and black tennis shoes. Police took blood swabs from Eddie's shins. They found a small drop of blood on one of Eddie's shins, and later this would be tested. We should keep in mind, that the O'Briens believe that Eddie is being talked to because he was mugged earlier that day. The evidence that is being collected at this time is Eddie's clothes, fingerprints, blood. They're taking photographs of the young boy. 
and such. And again, they believe this is necessary for the mugging incident. Eddie and his father filled out and signed the consent forms for collection of this evidence. After collecting the evidence and the photographs were taken, it was time for the officers to have a nice long chat with all of the parties. So they went to the Somerville police station. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. 
New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Cheers to you there, Mr. Captain. Cheers to everybody out there. There we go. We just covered everybody. Yeah, everybody. Everybody in the world. At the Somerville Police Station, so on our timeline, it is now just after 2 a.m. The officers have Eddie sign a Miranda waivers form. This is protocol at the time in Massachusetts for persons over the age of 14, but under the age of 17. This is not typically done when you are about to interview a victim. So this is where Captain, us on the outside looking in, can see that the officers here do not fully consider the 15-year-old boy to be a victim. They think of him in such a manner that requires them, it requires the consent form before questioning. Eddie's father went with one of the officers into another room for questioning of his own. And then Eddie and his uncle, and now we have Eddie's mother present as well, remained in this room during the questioning. And several officers are questioning Eddie at this time. So I don't, I, w- I want everybody to be clear. This, this boy, this 15 year old boy was not left alone with officers. Yes. He has no attorney present with him, but he has his mother and his uncle in this room with him. So he's got parental supervision or, you know, the, the backing of his family. Eddie was asked to recall his day. Eddie said when he arrived at his best friend's house, Ryan's house, that the groceries were already in the house. This is because Janet, the mother went to the grocery store just 
prior to Eddie arriving. He said he did not help bring them in because there was no need to do so. He and a boy named Joey Dion went into the den, this with the intent to play video games. But Ryan's mother was asleep in that room, so they went into the kitchen instead. They did this so they would not wake her up. There in the kitchen were other the other boys hanging out. Soon, everyone left all at the same time, and Eddie went home. Later, Eddie said he was on his front porch when he saw Paul Downing go into his home and then saw Paul leave after, he says, 10, maybe 15 minutes, and Paul leaves with three girls. They get in a vehicle, they drive off. Right. Then Eddie said he walked down the street and went to Burger King. This is, <laughs> I, I had to laugh about this, Captain, because we just spoke a few weeks ago about how McDonald's always seems to weasel its way into 60% or so of our cases. Well, now we have Burger King trying to step in on old Mickey D's action. Right, the Whopper. That's right. So Eddie says he walks to the Burger King, and he said that the, the restaurant was quite busy, and then the food that he ate there upset his stomach a bit, so he decided to leave. So not a good showing out of Burger King. Right, but do we have a receipt for this visit? That's that's interesting that you say that. I don't, we don't have a receipt for this. What's interesting is the Burger King thing does not so much come into question because of other information that will later come out. Mm-hmm. He says after this experience at the old BK that he decided to walk down to Union Square to this area because he wanted to go to a place called Jimmy's. This was like another food establishment. On his way there is when he said he got mugged. He was mugged, he said, when he walked down Somerville Street. After this, he went to his work, which was nearby. Remember, this would be a safe place for Eddie. Right. He's just been mugged. Where are you going to go? You ain't going to go to Jimmy's now and get something to eat. In fact, the people that mugged you stole all of your money. So you're going to go to your work. You're injured. And he said that, he said he never returned to the Downing home after he left with the group when he said he was going home because they were going swimming and he didn't want to go swimming. Right. What's interesting here, we say that they're questioning this boy, but really all they do is ask him to recall his day. He's not being asked specific questions even about the mugging or specific questions so much about Janet Downing, who was murdered, who lived across the street from him. He's just being asked to record his day, recall his day. And really, it appears to me that the majority of this visit seems more about photographing him. Right. And taking his fingerprints and taking his blood, getting that stuff, getting, collecting evidence from him. Well, two days later, on July 25th, 1995, 15-year-old Eddie O'Brien, he is arrested and charged with the murder of his best friend's mother, who lives almost directly across the street from the O'Brien home. One month later, on the 25th of August, a grand jury indicts Eddie for first-degree murder. Mm. So what the hell happened? Police said they didn't believe Eddie's story. They believed that the cuts to his hand was not from the knife attack during the mugging incident that Eddie said took place, 
but that the cuts were from his knife attack that he committed on Janet Downing. And he had either injured himself while killing his best friend's mother or when she fought and tried to fight for her own life, causing the cuts to his hand. Right. Also, police said that they had physical evidence that Eddie committed the crime. Police said they matched a bloody fingerprint from a beam in Downing's cellar to Eddie O'Brien. The prosecutor said they had Eddie's blood and fingerprints at the crime scene. And Eddie had blood consistent with that of Janet Downing on his shin. This was a small drop. They also said that they had three eyewitnesses that saw Eddie fleeing the murder scene. Their claim is that Eddie fabricated the mugging story as an alibi for the cuts suffered during the commission of the murder. Right. And some of his family members were out on the porch. You would think they would have noticed him going in and out of the neighbor's house. Yeah. This story doesn't really heat up and get really interesting and into the nitty gritty of the details until the whole thing gets to trial. This is what's coming out in the papers at the time. The police and the prosecutor saying, this is what we have against this, this 15 year old boy. We're going to arrest him. We're going to charge him with first degree murder. And it looks on the surface from what they're putting in the papers to be what could amount to a mountain of evidence against this boy. Yeah. Like I said, if, if he used a knife and there was that many stab wounds, that there would be a lot of blood, that knife becomes slippery. The handle becomes slippery. They normally can injure themselves by attacking somebody else. So Eddie O'Brien is arrested and charged. As we said, Janet Downing was laid to rest. Eddie's parents were invited by neighbors to attend the funeral and the mass for the services for Janet Downing. The neighbors said that they did not want this tragedy to tear the neighborhood split right down the middle, as one neighbor put it. The O'Briens not only believed their son's story and believed that he was innocent of the charges, they were very vocal about this belief. They did interviews with the Globe. And on August 2nd, 1995, just a, a little more than a week after the murder, the O'Briens announced a $5,000 reward for information leading to the men they believe mugged their son. Mm. Now, two days later, and I, I believe that this should give everyone some insight into the character of this boy, of Eddie O'Brien, or what those around him thought about him at the time, even though this kid's been charged with murder. The owner of the store where Eddie worked, he added $10,000 to the reward offered by the O'Briens. Yeah, and you don't do that if you think this kid is a scumbag. Well, that's the thing. He's, you know, I, I know this term is well overused and it, it say it. It's tired, but he's, he's described as a gentle giant or yeah. a big teddy bear. Well, like you said, his face makes him look younger than he actually is. He's got a kind face and I, and I, I hate that phrase too, but really when I saw pictures of him, that's, that's what I think of. He's, he's got boyish looks. He's got a baby face and people said that he was not an aggressive person. He didn't argue with people. He didn't get angry. He didn't, you know, 
fly into fits or anything like that. In fact, his parents and some of the coaching staff on his football team would get angry and upset with him because he wasn't aggressive enough on the football field. He even told his father, according to Big Ed anyway, Mm -hmm. that he was worried that he would hurt the kids. He didn't want to hurt the kids because he was so much bigger than most of them. Right. So he kind of hold back when he'd play against people. Yeah. So we have Eddie who says, I was mugged. We have his parents and now his employer who are looking for the people that mugged him. But see, Eddie's got a secret. <laughs> and it's a really big secret. And it's about to come out. Two weeks after Eddie O'Brien was arrested and charged with murder, he gave his attorney a note that said Mm. he was at the crime scene the night that Janet Downing was murdered. Eddie says the following is the real story. Mm. Let's remind everyone of Eddie O'Brien's plans for that night. He's going to walk to the Burger King, grab a snack, and then walk to his friend Garvey's house. But before doing this, this is the part that is new to everybody. But before doing this, at the last minute, he said he decides he's going to go across the street to see if his best friend Ryan had returned from swimming. And if so, he wants to see if Ryan wants to tag along with him for that night. Now, I really want to hit home this timestamp of 9.15 p.m. At 9.15 p.m., three witnesses place Eddie O'Brien at his house. This is his father, this is his sister, and this is also the grandfather. Eddie O'Brien's grandfather was living with them at the time. They would later say, we all were aware that he was there at 9.15 because we heard him yell to Big Ed Hey, I'm going out. I'm going down to the, I'm leaving the house to go to Burger King. So this was not just him going to his father and asking, this is him kind of yelling it at the house and asking for permission, but announcing it at the same time. So Eddie says he went across the street to the Downing house. Mm -hmm. He knocked on the window, which was typical. He says he noticed that the front door was unlocked. So he went inside. He said most of the lights in the house were off. He said he saw blood in places as he made his way through the house. He noticed the bathroom door was closed. He says he saw Janet Downing laying on the living room floor. She's lying on her side. Mm -hmm. He says he ran over to her to see if she was all right. He put his hand on her and he said Janet was not conscious. And Eddie said that there was blood all over the floor. He says he didn't understand what had happened to this woman. He turned her over. So now she is on her back. He says that he saw all of the cuts to her neck. Janet was covered in blood and she wasn't breathing. Eddie wanted to get help. So he said he started to go back to the front door. Mm hmm. He says before he got to the door, someone grabbed him from behind. He described this person as a tall man with dark hair. The man was wearing a nylon stocking over his face and some kind of what Eddie called latex gloves. As tall as Eddie or is he shorter than Eddie? There was no 
height description given in the information that I found. The man put a knife to Eddie's throat and told him, if you tell anyone about this, I will kill you and I will kill your family and I will have plenty of time to do it before the cops can catch me. Right. Then Eddie said he heard something and he, he believes it was a knock at the door. The man then told Eddie to get out of there. So Eddie ran to the cellar and out the cellar door. So he's, he doesn't run out the front door. He runs to the cellar, down the steps, to the cellar, and out the cellar door. Mm-hmm. He said when he got to this portion of the house that the cellar door was already open. So he's just running outside. Once outside, he stumbled and fell into some bushes. If you look at a map of the the uh, neighborhood, you will see that there is a large amount of bushes or what even some were calling a wooded area that is described to be, I would describe it as behind mm-hmm. the Downing home. I have seen some reports that say it's beside the Downing home. So, I, I mean, I don't want to, whatever words people want to use, go for it. Now, do we have a map that we can put on the website or Instagram? Uh, we might. Okay. Um, Check I, our Instagram because we might have. I'm looking some at stuff. one right here. I do want to point out something too before we move on. That I found this to be interesting, and it is somewhat part of the case, but it it should be noted the the home, the Downing home, is a duplex, so they share a wall with somebody else, right? The Downing family purchased this home in the late seventies. Her Janet Downing and her ex-husband purchased this duplex in the late seventies and they lived in one side and rented out the other side. So at the time in 1995, Janet, who is now single divorced, she's living there with her four kids on one side and they've rented out the other side. The people living at the other side are the Reckleys, the ones that follow big Ed into the crime scene. Right. The Reckleys had rented from Janet Downing for like five years. And they didn't hear anything. They heard some things and we can get into that during the trial, but some of the things they heard, I personally, I question them. Um, there's been a lot made of what they might have heard at eight fifteen, which is difficult because we have Paul who's in and out of the house at eight fifteen. Mm-hmm. Back to uh, Eddie's story. Okay, so he runs out the cellar door, says the cellar door was already open when he got to that point of the house. Once outside, he said he stumbled and fell into those bushes that I am saying are directly behind the house. He says he doesn't remember getting scratched or injured during this fall. He said then he went to the sidewalk and started walking away from the house. He believes that he heard someone or maybe some people calling out to him, Mm -hmm. but he says he just kept going. So now he is fleeing from the house and he's running down. If if you're looking at a map, he's running down Hamlet street toward Highland Avenue away from the Downing home. He said he then walked to the Burger King and he went into the bathroom, washed his face and, and some of his body because he says he was sweating profusely by this time. Not only is it summer and it's probably hot out, right? but if his story is truthful, he's probably scared to death and he's been moving quite quickly through the neighborhood to get down to the Burger King. And he said he didn't know what to do. 
He said he wanted to go home. That's your natural thought, I guess. But he said he was afraid to. Remember? It's also right across the street. Right across the street. You're taking a very long detour. Yeah. So, well, no, he he says he, he it wasn't until he got to the Burger King that he could kind of clear his mind. My my guess is that when he's running from the Downing House, he's just running from the Downing House. Mm-hmm. Once at the Burger King, he's that's where he's saying, once there, I didn't know what to do. I I wanted to go home, but because it was right across the street from where the man threatened my life and my family's life, he didn't feel like he could go home. He says he left the Burger King, and it was then that he was approached by what he describes as two boys. Most of the newspaper articles say two men, but his description was that of two boys. And he said one of them had a knife. These two boys were the ones who he claims mugged him. He said that he gave them all of the money that he had, which was $17. He said one of the boys threatened him and told him that he was going to cut him. And this kid was coming at Eddie and Eddie says he kind of side stepped him, you know, steps back and he stuck out his hand in his arm to try to shield himself with his hand. He doesn't remember getting cut at this time, but he put his hand out to block the knife from there. He decides to go to his work, the midnight convenience store there. He told one of his coworkers that he had just been jumped. The worker picked up the phone and dialed 911 and handed Eddie the phone. And that is when police and EMTs arrived at the midnight convenience store about 15 minutes later. Right. And that's where they're going to check his person and, and the injuries, take him to the hospital. And that's kind of where the conversation between him and police start happening. Yeah. So here's what they observe at the midnight convenience store. There is a cut on Eddie's pinky finger. There is a larger cut on the palm of his hand and a cut going down his thumb. All three of these cuts were to Eddie's right hand. Right. So after the EMTs were done with Eddie, the Somerville police who responded to the call, they drove Eddie home. Now, once he was home, his grandfather is recommending, hey, you should probably go to the hospital and get a tetanus shot. Mm-hmm. And get this hand examined one more time. Remember the EMTs, when they examined his hand, they didn't really, they didn't do anything. They just kind of, you know, cleaned it up. Well, and like we said, and I think I've brought it up twice already, if he is using a knife himself, think about what would happen if a knife slipped through your hands. You're going to be cut possibly on your thumb, your index finger, your, your palm. So... It doesn't, those wounds don't have to be multiple stab wounds. It could be one injury for one slippage of, of a knife that you're in control of. Yes. It was a cut, a cut to his thumb, a cut to the palm and a cut to his pinky finger. Now they decide that, that his family decides that Eddie probably should have got stitches. Mm -hmm. They think he should get a tetanus shot. They take him to the hospital and, And then that is where we know that police really first started questioning Eddie because think about this for a situation. Now, yeah, there's 77, roughly 77,000 people living in this area, but you get a call at just before or right around 10 o'clock 
that a woman's been stabbed to death in her home. And then uh, shortly after 10 o'clock, you get a call that a boy, 15-year-old boy, and depending on which route you take. Which is her neighbor. Yeah. Depending on which route you take, it's 0.4 to 0.5, so less than a half a mile away. Mm-hmm. This kid is involved in a knife attack. So not only proximity in far as location, but proximity in time as well, two knife attacks take place, or at least the finding of one victim and then the reporting of another victim. Yeah. Friends with her kids, knows the victim, the neighbor of the victim, was in the victim's house earlier that day, many times. It seems like kids frequent that address. Um, what I wonder, though, is what was he wearing before he went home? Uh, instead of going swimming, before going home and, and not hanging out with his friends, what was he wearing? Well, see, that is where a big problem happens for... You're the big problem. ...the police and for later the prosecutor. Okay. There are, there, there's like a dozen witnesses that say Eddie O'Brien was wearing the same thing that morning, that afternoon, that evening, before and after the murder. And then he's photographed by police. Right. Twice. Mm-hmm. White shirt. White shirt. It's above the rim shirt. Remember people from the nineties will remember yeah. the above the rim uh, brand. I don't yeah. know if they're still around. Everything's below the rim now. Um, <laughs> very sad. Very... But uh, he had an, a white above the rim T-shirt on, which was turned inside out. And he was in again. This was not uncommon. And it's not like he was wearing the shirt right side out, and then later it's inside out. No, right. every person says he was wearing an above the rim shirt that morning, that afternoon, that evening, that night. He was wearing green shorts and he was wearing his black tennis shoes. Mm-hmm. Now you point out something that's very interesting. It's the, yes, if, if, if this giant of a boy was using a knife to, to murder this woman and stab her repeatedly, mm-hmm. it very easily could have slipped and he could have cut himself during that attack or she's fighting him off and he loses control of the knife and cuts himself but then you have a problem where this woman was brutally attacked, and yeah, he's got cuts to his hand. Well, let's stay at but, the crime scene for a second. But where's the blood on his on his body or on his clothing? Yeah, because how many stab stab wounds do we have? Oh, man. This was... See, that's the other thing, too. This was a horrible, horrible attack. So what's the motive for this kid? Well, uh, because, because he thought she was uh, attractive... Well, so then wouldn't the motivation be sexual in nature? Do we have any sexual assault that no, happened? No sexual situ- assault. She was mm-hmm. stabbed, believed to be 98 times. 98 times. 98 times. And that's not the extent of her injuries. We can get into that during the trial portions of this story. But, I mean, you're talking 98 times. That's a brutal attack. The The general thought was that she, that, that Eddie O'Brien became obsessed with this woman and that he was some kind of sexual sadist, and he decided to attack and kill her. And he went in there with the knife and stabbed her 98 times, and then he fled the scene, made up this whole story of, oh, I was attacked. 
I mean, did he stab her like really slowly to make sure that he didn't get any blood on his shirt? Well, see, that's the part of the story that there's all these question marks, Captain. Captain, there's there's a ton of Captain. Captain. Cabin. His new name is Cabin. There's all these question marks. There are things that make this young man appear to be guilty. Mm-hmm. But there are also things that you go, well, if he did, in fact, kill her, why are we not seeing this type of evidence? Well, people will go, well, he went to the Burger King. He said by his own his own admission that he went to the Burger King and he washed his face. He washed his hands and he washed portions of his body. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, good luck getting that amount of blood off of you. And how did he get the blood off of his clothes? Right. The one thing I don't like about his story, though, Captain, is that. It's not that Eddie called 911. It's that he gets to the store and it's it's the uh the the store clerk working at the time that goes what the hell happened to you? Oh, I was jumped. That store clerk dials 911 hands him the phone. It's almost like he was forced to do it. Right. He was forced on the spot to come up with an excuse for why he was cut. Right. And maybe, boom, that's his, his alibi. Maybe he wasn't intending on going home for several hours after he killed Again, this though, woman. the problem you have is you have a store clerk that knows him that doesn't tell you he's covered in blood. So unless right. you can find a bloody shirt somewhere that he changed out of, and like you said, there's multiple eyewitnesses saying he wore, wore the same shirt. That's not to say he lives right across the street. Right. I'll just take this uh, shirt. I'm I'm going to pull this one off. I'll wear this shirt. I go in, commit the crime. I got blood all over me. I have to discard the the shirt. Now I put back on my old shirt. Again, a big bloody mess. And you're going to put on a white shirt. Ugh. A lot of other colors you could go with. That that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Ninety eight times. Like if I was wearing a white shirt and I was eating spaghetti and I took 98 bites. I'm going to get more spaghetti sauce on me than this kid that supposedly just stabbed this lady 98 times violently because he was so obsessed with her got any blood on his shirt. So much more to get to. Make sure you stick around. Join us again tomorrow in the garage. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore One Nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.